Well, this morning's scripture lesson is going to come from Micah chapter 2. We did most of Micah chapter 1 last week, and we'll get into chapter 2 now. And that'll be on the the screen in front of me in the New International Revised Standard, or uh, no, Reader's Version. It's uh, kind of a kind of the, the simplest full translation of, of the Bible that we're, we're using. So you're welcome to look that up in your own uh, Bibles or devices, but it may not match exactly because uh, of choosing this translation for this series. So it's going to be Micah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. How terrible it will be for those who plan to harm others. How terrible for those who make evil plans before they even get out of bed. As soon as daylight comes, they carry out their plans. That's because they have the power to do it. If they want fields or houses, they take them. They cheat people out of their homes. They rob them of their property. So the Lord says to them, I am planning to send trouble on you. You will not be able to save yourselves from it. You will not live so proudly anymore. It will be a time of trouble. At that time, people will make fun of you. They will tease you by singing a song of sadness. They will pretend to be you and say, We are totally destroyed. Our enemies have divided up our land. The Lord has taken it away from us. He has given our fields to those who turned against us. So you won't even have anyone left in the Lord's community who can divide up the land for you. Don't prophesy, the people's prophets say. Don't prophesy about bad things. Nothing shameful is going to happen to us. People of Jacob, should anyone say the Lord is patient so he wouldn't do things like that? The Lord replies, what I promise brings good things to those who lead honest lives. But lately my people have attacked one another as if they were enemies. You strip off the rich robes from those who happen to pass by. They thought they were as safe as men returning from a battle they had won. You drive the women among my people out of their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing even from their children forever. Get up. Leave this land. It is no longer your resting place. You have made it unclean. You have completely destroyed it. Suppose a prophet goes around telling lies, and he prophesies that you will have plenty of wine and beer. Then that kind of prophet would be just right for this nation. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So, this July, spending some time in the relatively short Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is not one of the more popular books of the Bible, but that can be a plus for us in this series, because I think it is valuable to venture <coughs> excuse me, into parts of the Bible that we don't often go, without any particular goal or agenda, just to look at what God might choose to speak into our lives in today's world. So, last week I introduced Micah and the state of the world he wrote from. And I spoke about one of the two major issues that Micah raises on God's behalf, which was the corruption of worship in Israel and Judah. So if you missed last week or you needed a refresher, I thought I would use this really excellent introduction to the book of Micah from the Bible Project. So that's going to pop up on video in a moment. And it's going to focus on the other big issue that Micah rails against, which is injustice and specifically economic injustice. So let's watch that to catch ourselves up a little bit. The book of the prophet Micah 
Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel. Or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of Accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people, and he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. All right, that's a nicely illustrated way to catch us up a little bit as we hit Micah chapter 2. And if you're someone who ever goes on YouTube, by the way, uh, the, the wealth of stuff that the, the Bible Project has up there explaining books of the Bible, concepts, themes, how to read different parts of Scripture, it's just, they do some just incredibly good work, and I'm, I'm just always impressed with what I see there. So that's, if you want to get into some Bible stuff on your own ever, the Bible Project is a, is a great way to do it. So chapter 2 starts with this thing called a woe speech. Like, as in, woe is you. Uh, and it's done in the style of a funeral lament. So the, the implication is that the people that Micah is talking about, they're as, really as good as dead because of the wicked things that they have been doing. Right? When he says, how horrible it will be for those who plan to harm others. How terrible for those who make evil plans before they even get out of bed. I mean, one way to work out what you truly worship is to consider what your first thoughts are when you wake up in the morning. And so Micah wrote about the leaders and powerful men of Israel and Judah who woke up 
in the morning already hatching plans to take whatever they could get their hands on. They would target the homes and farms of the poor and find ways to, to get control over them. Using or abusing the laws of the land or whatever levers of power they could get their hands on. As soon as daylight comes, they carry out their plans. That's because they have the power to do it, right? Not for any other reason, but because they can. Certainly not out of desperation. I mean, at this time, Israel and Judah were about as wealthy as they'd ever been. These people were already rich, but they, they took more because why not in their minds? And they did not care who got hurt along the way, including uh, widows and orphans who were fair game to them. Micah says, you drive the women among my people out of their pleasant homes. You take my blessing from their children forever. So this oppressive behavior was especially infuriating because of the lengths that God had already gone through to help his people not end up in this situation. Because the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for a long time before God rescued them. And so once they had been freed, God gave them a law and various practices that they were intended to make sure that they never became slaves again, including by not enslaving themselves or not enslaving each other. In Israel, there were some forms of indentured servitude that were allowed, but they were required to be temporary. There were ways that an Israelite who'd fallen on hard times could find food and shelter and protection and work in service to some other family. But they still retained their rights as Israelites. They were not to be separated from their families. Very, very different from what we might think about, especially since our, our concept of slavery is usually um, you know, African slave trade, uh, chattel slavery, which is, is quite a different thing. God also gave direction that was meant to prevent people from being forced into economic slavery. In Leviticus 25, for example, there's this fascinating thing called the Year of Jubilee, where all the property in Israel reverted to the families who first owned it. So the way it was supposed to work was that you could not permanently buy or sell most types of property, not you know, family farms and, and, and homes uh, out in the land. It could only change hands until the next year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. And so if you were buying a farm, you calculated the value of the land based on how many harvests there were until the next year of Jubilee. And this was meant to prevent a small group of super rich people from gradually accumulating all of the land and therefore all of the wealth. And the Old Testament has much, much more to say about economic justice throughout. There were rules against lending money at interest, for example. And taken together, it paints this picture of God's priorities for his people in this land that he's giving them. That they would create a society where the vulnerable were respected and protected, where the rich did not take advantage of the poor, where his people would act for the common good and not simply out of a desire to grow their wealth and power for its own sake. But it didn't work. The people of Israel and Judah did not obey. They became just as greedy and as oppressive as any other group of people around them. And this made God angry. It made Micah angry. One Old Testament scholar summarized the book of Micah this way. He said, his whole message might be summed up in this one sentence. Those who live selfish and luxurious lives, even though they offer costly sacrifices, are vampires in the sight of God, sucking the lifeblood of the poor. His words fairly quiver with fear. And so this injustice is the second reason that Micah gives his people for the disaster that is coming. That the northern kingdom of Israel would soon be conquered and ruined by the Assyrian Empire, and that Assyria and then Babylon would come after Judah and Jerusalem after that. But the Israelites, of course, don't want to hear this, especially people living the high life. 
which is why we read, you don't prophesy, the people's prophets, the other prophets say. Don't prophesy about bad things. Nothing shameful is going to happen to us, right? Don't tell us what we're doing is wrong. Don't try to shame us for living the way we want to live. And Micah's answer from God about this comes in verse 7 and on. He says, the Lord replies, what I promise brings good things to those who lead honest lives. But lately my people have attacked one another as if they were enemies. And then he ends up by saying, suppose a prophet goes around telling lies and he prophesies that you will have plenty of wine and beer. Well, then that's the kind of prophet that would be just right for this nation. The kind of prophet who's just going to say, oh, everything's fine. Do whatever you like. God is going to bless you anyway. And this comes back to kind of a common theme. And it's one that Jesus argued about with certain Pharisees and teachers of the law as well. Because the people of Israel and Judah felt entitled to God's blessing. Even while they totally ignored his commands and mistreated the people around them. And if we jump ahead a little to Micah chapter 3, he speaks about this some more when he says that her leaders, meaning Judah in this case, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money, yet they look for the Lord's support and they say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. And here God explains that it does not work that way. What I promise brings good things on those who lead honest lives, not to those who abuse and oppress others, not to those who treat their neighbors like enemies. Such people have disgraced their home and they will not be allowed to remain there. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. This was especially bad in the people of Jerusalem who thought, well, God would never let Jerusalem get destroyed. God won't let some other foreign enemy destroy his temple. And God did, because what good is a temple to a people who won't worship you properly? And the passage ends with Micah taking a shot at those prophets who won't say anything bad. He says, just imagine a prophet who goes around saying, everything's fine. You're going to get to live easy lives with unlimited wine and beer on the patio forever. That's the prophets you want to hear from even if it's just all foolish lies. So that's the second major sin that Micah warns about, that's going to bring destruction. And what could that mean for us who then want to follow Jesus in the year 2023? And I would say that first of all, the issues of economic injustice we read about here should not be all that hard for us to wrap our heads around. I mean, it's not like we aren't familiar with the concept of the rich and powerful using their riches and power to get even richer and more powerful. We live in this time of massively influential billionaires who run companies that generate more income than many of the countries on earth and wield huge influence over our laws and systems. I don't know if you remember, it's just a few years ago that a major engineering and construction company in Quebec was facing these criminal charges of fraud and corruption for all this shady business they did in Libya. But luckily for them, they had friends in high places. And before long, the prime minister himself was was calling the attorney general to say, oh, go easy on these folks. Let's make sure they don't get punished the way they normally would. Something that was later found to be a violation of conflict of interest legislation. And what were the consequences? Well, I think if this was Britain, the prime minister would have been forced to resign or been ousted. But here in Canada, he went on to win re-election. I don't know if you remember back in 2008, there was a massive financial crisis in the United States which happened because a bunch of loans were given to people who wanted to buy homes, like most people do. 
But they were offered these mortgages that started off at a rate that was affordable, but then quickly the rate went up and up and up to the point where it wouldn't be affordable for those folks. But they weren't necessarily told that or explained that very well. And then these loans were taken by these huge financial companies and they were, they were sold and repackaged with other kinds of loans until hardly anybody even understood that this was bad debt at this point. And eventually it got, you know, so this happened so much and it that the whole house of cards collapsed and the U.S. government had to come in, do these huge bailouts to these massive financial institutions just to stop the whole system from falling apart. And of course, who ended up facing the serious consequences of this? Right? Was it the billion-dollar banks? Was it the millionaire corporate executives? And of course not. Right? Those people don't face serious consequences for things. It was mostly the people who were given the predatory loans, who lost their homes, the communities and businesses that were devastated by the wave of foreclosures that followed. Or we can just look around us right now. As you know, we know that the price, of course, of basic necessities has shot up due to inflation. And what is the solution to this that's being used to put this back under control? It's to have the Bank of Canada raise interest rates which also makes it harder for people to service their debt on top of struggling to buy gas and groceries. And that, of course, affects the poorest people most, once again. So what's basically supposed to happen is once enough people get knocked a couple rungs down the economic ladder, well, then inflation should calm down, which means that impoverishing some Canadians is not an unfortunate side effect of the strategy. It is the strategy. Right? Meanwhile, new reports are telling us more and more about just how, just how much more profit is being raked in by the companies selling us those basic necessities of life. But the good news is there is one solution, a new solution being offered by the government of Canada because of all this. If you've been especially hit hard, they'll help you kill yourself. Right? We may be falling short in terms of helping those with disabilities and chronic illnesses and severe depression, but if they get tired of waiting for help that might never come, we are going to increasingly make it easier and more convenient and more timely for them to access medically assisted dying as a solution to their problem. This is perhaps the greatest evidence I've ever seen that we've truly transitioned into a post-Christian society. Because if you pull especially younger people today, they think that's, that's totally fine. People who, you know, in desperate circumstances want to take their lives, we should help them. That's respecting their dignity and their autonomy. Just imagine the song of woe that an Old Testament prophet could write about these things. And I actually do mean that. Imagine what a prophet, speaking the words of God as Micah did, might say about these things. Because that's the first thing that you and I can do in response to what the Bible has to say through the book of Micah. That we should not simply shrug our shoulders about injustice. That we shouldn't get so used to the examples of brokenness in our systems and our world that we, we accept them and just say, well, that's the way it is. That's the way it has to be. Because there is this big, bright thread woven through the Bible calling to our attention again and again that God cares for the poor and the vulnerable and that religion which does not do the same is not of God. And that thread passes right through the one passage from the book of Micah that many Christians actually know, which is Micah 6.8 which says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I am not a huge, like, overthrow the system guy because I think the alternatives, especially to our economic system, have shown themselves to be so much worse for those living under them. 
but our system certainly does need reform. We could work a lot better in a lot of ways that aren't limited simply to the talking points of being a liberal or being a conservative. I mean, for starters, and it's infuriating because most people would agree, and yet we, we see so little get done, shouldn't people working full-time be able to afford a reasonable roof over their heads and enough healthy food for their table? But here in Halifax, that's become increasingly difficult. Even people with lots of income can't always get a roof over their heads right now. And if I asked you if you're in favor of slavery, I'm pretty sure nobody's going to raise their hand to that. But what do we call a person who has no choice but to work three grueling jobs just to survive and with little prospect of that situation improving? And I know I struggle with this because I don't often know the best way to channel some of the anger and the sadness I experience when I read about examples of injustice in our city or our province or our country, or when I meet people who have, they've been left behind, they've been beaten down, they seem destined for a rough life of just trying to keep their heads above water enough of the time. You may not know this, but a portion of the money you donate to our community care fund is used to buy grocery gift cards, and I find a lot of those get given out to families with young children where one or both parents are in the midst of kind of just bouncing from job to job. Oftentimes, they're let go for a little while because the project they were working on wrapped up and the company isn't ready to gear up for the next thing, or it's a seasonal kind of work, or it's a weather-dependent job even that doesn't offer a lot of stability for them. Uh, there was a younger man recently in because he was waiting for his EI claim. He'd been working, but uh, while the, sometimes those claims getting processed, getting your first check can take weeks, even months if you hit some kind of bureaucratic snag. And so he'd, he'd been to the food bank, he'd, been, he'd talked to social services, he'd taken care of most things, but he couldn't uh, get baby formula for his one-year-old because the food banks don't usually keep that in stock and it's just become a pretty expensive item in grocery stores. And so that was, that was the one bit of help that he was looking for. What can we do to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God? How can we be part trying to make sure that Canada, one of the most prosperous nations in the world, is not a place where we make slaves of one another. And first, I would start off by making sure that we don't overlook what we already do. Because I mentioned the church's community care fund, and I'll mention that we, you know, we don't take up offerings on Communion Sunday the way we used to. Maybe something we should look at getting back to because it highlights it every month. Uh, but at the moment, we just invite people to designate funds to that uh, through their regular offering or to make a special gift, which you can do anytime in person or through e-transfer, because the needs are very real. There are large gaps in the support systems out there. We were con connected recently with a social worker who'd been trying to help a young family for a long time get themselves a place to live, and had finally found them an apartment that would be suitable, that would take them but they, she couldn't get them into the apartment because they had uh, overdue payments on their, to Nova Scotia Power for power bills. And it turns out that that's like the one thing that nobody does, right? There's no government program. There's no specific charity that you can easily turn to for that. And so people, and even, oftentimes even social workers say, I guess try calling churches. Like, I don't have any other way. There's no one else who's going to help you with this. Being engaged in charitable work the charitable work of the church is a response to this. We, we donate to Beacon House and many other causes. As part of our Connecting to Our Community initiative for the fall, we're going to be looking at ways to get a little bit more hands-on with some of the organizations that we are supporting, are part of, and get some, get some work projects and other things going. Another response, of course, is personal charity. 
being generous and caring for needs of those you encounter and know in your day-to-day life, your neighbors, your extended family, to see where that leads. And of course, this includes generosity with your time as well, like those who give their time at the, the Beacon House Food Bank or shelter. Another response that we can think about is working to improve our systems. Maybe that's being on the board of a, a charity or working to influence the political process in some way, to focus some attention on injustices that need creating and to stop just talking about how it's a problem and find some actual solutions that get implemented in our lifetimes that will make a difference. But let me tie back to Micah for one last thing to challenge us all in our thinking a bit. Because to be serious about that instruction to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, it has to mean more than living basically like everybody else but being a bit more generous. Right? Because because I max out my charitable tax deduction every year and my neighbor doesn't, is not enough to kind of check off that box of loving mercy and acting justly. I mean, the most wicked people that Michael, Micah wrote about and wrote against were still bringing sacrifices to the temple all the time to show their righteousness. We live in a consumerist society, and we don't even see it at this point because of how that's just the, the water we swim in. We're told every day that a meaningful life requires us to have all sorts of things. The properly outfitted home and the the exciting vehicle and the the multitude of entertainment options and the, the thousand little luxuries being advertised to us all the time. And that's how our world wants us to live and to stay living at a pace where we don't even notice anymore because we're so busy going from thing to thing to thing to stop and wonder, is this a good way to live? Or am I caught up in something crazy? How do you think the God who gave his words to the prophet Micah wants us to live? If we're going to actually influence our world in the right direction, I think that part of the answer has to come in living more carefully, more simply, more intentionally. I mean, I don't think I could, I could not hack it as an Amish person, but at least I admire their determination not to live simply in the way the culture around them tells them to live. Do we trust God enough to live any differently, to spend our money any differently, to invest our time any differently? Not a token that we can easily afford, but in a way that actually costs us something and therefore actually shapes and forms us differently than our neighbors are being shaped and formed by the culture that we all live in. Now, the good news is that for those who do trust God enough to go against the grain, there's also a lot of hope found in what Micah wrote, and that is what we're going to start on next week in a big way. But for today, let me just invite the Holy Spirit to use these reflections from Scripture and point us to ways that we can be faithful to God. Let's, 